Hey, friends, thanks so much for tuning in to the Albert Tate Podcast. I hope you're enjoying this season. We've been talking about the waiting room, and uh, it's just been encouraging and inspiring. I've been getting a lot of notes and feedback from you, so please keep those comments. Put the comments in there. uh, Send me notes uh, if you're being encouraged. Uh, And, of course, always like and share and subscribe. Um, I'm, I'm so excited. This episode, oh my goodness, I got a chance to sit down and talk with the podcast king, that's the Kerry Newhoff. He has a leadership podcast that has literally been downloaded by, uh, by millions of folks. Uh, he just has a leading voice on leadership. So we got a chance to sit down and talk, and we had an amazing conversation uh, about leadership, about identity, platform, but also... We got a chance to talk about the waiting room and have there been seasons in his life of the waiting room and what he learned. So get ready. It's going to be inspiring. You're going to learn a lot. And, um, yo, he's just one of the best. Uh, welcome, Carrie Newhoff, to the Albert Tate Podcast. I love it. Carrie Newhoff. I'm so excited. I'm on the Albert Tate show. I'm excited. <laughs> hey, here we go. This the Albert great. Tate podcast. Uh-huh. The podcasting king is here. Oh. Uh, and I just, first of all, so honored that you would take some time to sit with me. And also just love your podcast. If you have any thoughts of thinking about imagining anything on leadership, Carrie Newhoff is the place to go. Interviews, great leaders. And I'm telling you, between his blog, between that, between his his new book, uh, Didn't See That Coming, all you need for leadership is housed on the Carrie Newhoff show. You are very kind, man. Yes, it's Albert. so good. It's great. And it was great to have you back on my show, too. Yeah, yeah, it was so fun. Carrie, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I got a couple of things I want to throw at you, but number one, um, platform mm-hmm. um, and building a platform. And there's a there's a cultural current that's happening where everyone's trying to build their own brand, everyone's trying to build their own platform, and obviously there's some beauty in that, and we can talk about that. But there are also some concerns that people are getting into pastoral ministry for a platform. People want to, people are building a brand so that they so they're not going after people, they're going after a platform, and how the rage about platform and and all that kind of stuff shows up, and how to keep your soul healthy while pursuing that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I've seen that for sure. And I get a lot of questions from young leaders about how do I build my platform? How do I do that? And yeah. I, I would say like when I was in my 30s, first of all, there was no way to build your platform. Yeah. I mean, there were, the internet was dial up. So yeah. it was really, it was like, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. that was bad. So I'm in my 50s now. So I have the advantage mm-hmm. of a couple of decades. And, you know, it's really over the last 10 years that I've seen um, sort of my ministry and the leadership work that I do catch fire on a bit of a more, you know, U.S. or global scale. Yeah. Or even Canadian. I'm yeah. still not very well known in Canada, even though I am Canadian. But I would say, yeah, there's all kinds of dangers with it. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think platform can be your goal. I think it has to be a happy accident of something that happened. Like mm-hmm. most people, uh, like if your goal is to build a platform, you'll probably never build a platform. Mm. And the reason is it might work for a season. Yeah. But um, people can sniff that out. They can tell, like now, you know, Instagram influencer is a thing. People want to be an influencer and they get 2,000 followers and they're like, look, I'm an influencer, right? And and I guess that kind of is a career. There's those, those vocational studies that have been done 
And like now, I, I think I read something the other day, and again, don't Google this because I'm probably wrong, <laughs> but I think I read something the other day where the majority of Gen Z wants to either be famous or entrepreneurs, Yeah, which is another way of entrepreneurs entrepreneurism is very hot right now. Yeah. I think those are really bad goals. Mm. I think what you should want to do is you want to help people. Zig Ziglar said years ago that if you help enough people get what they want, you will eventually get what you want. Wow. And I think that is 100% true. So in my own story, you know, I wasn't particularly pursuing platform. Uh, I mean, sure, we all have moments where like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to be on that stage? Or wouldn't yeah. it be fun to have a lot of people show up or, you know, for someone to know your name? Um, and so, yeah, have I had those moments? 100%. But what I, what I did was I did ministry in the middle of nowhere for 15 years before anybody knew my name. Yeah. And in, in the process of trying to lead a local congregation, I, I learned a lot of these lessons the hard way. Like, how do you transition a church? How do you, uh, what mistakes did I make as a young leader? Uh, how did I have to wrestle down my own character? Like, didn't see it coming. My last book, you know, we, we went through seven really personality issues or, or or personal struggles that every leader had. Well, mm. I've had all seven yeah. at some point yeah. in, in my journey, some more than others. You know, I became, I'm an optimist, I'm an optimist today, but I became very cynical in my late 30s. Well, a lot of that cynicism chapter is an autobiography about that really <laughs> bad decade in my life yeah. or burnout, you know? Yeah. I just wrote 75,000 words on burnout this summer. Wow. And Are you uh, burned out on Yeah, I'm burned out burnout? on burnout, man. I can't do it anymore. Is that your new book? <laughs> it's It'll come out in the fall of 2020, yeah. Wow. We're still working on a title, but it's really about overwhelm and the stress and anxiety that everybody feels in leadership these days and some of my own journey with that and then the recovery out of that. But man, that was like 20 years in the making, Albert. Wow. And as you know, as a leader, that stuff is painful. Yeah. And it's brutal. And the last thing, when I was burning out, I promise you, this thought did not cross my brain. It's like, oh, one day you're going to write a book on burnout. Mm. One day that'll be a life message, mm. you know? Like, I'm just like, I want to get out of bed today. That was my goal. Right, so I'm not thinking platform. I'm not thinking book. I hadn't written a book at the time. I wasn't thinking podcast. I wasn't thinking any of that. But then, and for the first couple of years, I couldn't talk about burnout because yeah. I was still in the process of recovering from burning out. Yeah, I'll tell you, the first time I talked about burnout, so I burned out in the summer of 2006. It was probably 07 or 08. The first time I'm like, okay, I think I can talk about this, but I wasn't really healed yet. Yeah. And I was in Philadelphia, and I forget who the pastor was. He was a good guy, and I spoke to his staff. And I don't know how I got invited in, but somehow he had heard of me. And so I went to speak about that. And after it was over, he pulled me aside and he goes, do you need to go see a counselor? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, probably, yes. But I wasn't healed enough mm. to talk about it yet. Tell me about that season right before you discovered that you were experiencing burnout. What did your life look like and feel like before it, that season was marked by burnout? Yeah. Well, it looked very different than it does now. I mean, you know, it's funny, Albert, because on one hand, it was the same. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it was different. Yeah. So I feel like on the other side of burnout, there's been a lot of redemption by God mm. on some gifts. So I was mm. a very ambitious 30-year-old, right? Move into leadership. I'd spent a decade in school. I did law for a little while and then, whoop, you know, right turn, left turn, ended up in ministry. And 
so it was 30 when I really went into leadership. And I mean, I was ambitious for the kingdom. Mm. I, I wanted to see people reached. And some of that was good motivation. Some of that was selfish motivation. Yeah. And I'm an Enneagram 8, as you are. Yes. So I burned through a lot of people in those days. Task mm. was more important than person and than people. And so we had a growing church. We were not huge. We weren't a thousand people. We were probably seven, eight hundred when I no, in oh six we were probably six hundred people. But that was a lot of people. Like a lot we of people, were the fastest man. growing church in our denomination, one yeah. of the largest in our denomination in the country, because Canada is not a nation of large churches. And so not a lot of people that I knew were leading what I was leading. And then everything kind of ran through me. Like I ran the whole thing. I didn't really empower my team. Mm. And I was trying to figure out how to build a team. Plus, I was married. I'd been married for about 15 years at the time. And my kids were entering their middle school years, their senior elementary and middle school years. And so things were busy at home. Things were busy at church, and my terrible formula was more people equals more hours. Hmm. And, you know, when you're in your 30s and you're an Enneagram 8, you can burn the midnight oil and not pay a price for it. Yeah. And I thought everything was fine. I had people telling me that there were cracks in the foundation. I didn't believe it. Um, I had, you know, our, our marriage, Tony and I were not in a good place in our marriage, hmm. and she was mad at me, and I was mad at her. And then one day, when, ironically, when I was on top of the world, I had spoken at my first major leadership conference, 2,500 people, <laughs> and apparently I crushed the talk. Wow. Like, it was amazing. Um, and I got off the plane in Toronto to drive back home, and everything unraveled. It's like I fell off a cliff. And so I think what happened, looking back on it now, a decade of burning the candle at both ends, a decade of not really paying attention to my spiritual and I spiritual health, I read the Bible every day. Mm. I'm like a Bible in one year kind of guy. Wow! So it's not like God and I were cheating or like I haven't prayed in six months. No, yeah. I was praying every single day, wow. and I was reading the Bible every single day. But there was a work that God had to do in me that He wasn't getting through to me, mm. and it all just kind of collapsed. So talk about because there may be somebody listening that's like in a pre burnout mm -hmm. season. And I'm wondering if there's a way to capture capture them. When you talk about unraveling in the car on the way from Toronto, mm -hmm. whatever you feel comfortable with sharing, what does the unraveling oh, yeah, look like? No. What does unraveling look like? Well, basically, my body and soul went on strike. Looking back on it, they were just like, okay, we're done. All those wow. people who said that. You know, you're going to – people had told me all through my 30s, be careful, you're going to burn out. And I'm like, I'm not going to burn out. I'm stronger than that. I'm better than that. And then my body is like, yes, you're burning out right now. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, okay. And it was so terrifying because as a guy who's used to being in control, I had no control anymore. Mm. But the signs leading up to it, looking back on it, and these are the things I watch for every day. You okay. know, here we are. I'm three hours. We're in California. Yeah. I'm three hours outside of my – normal time zone, but like yeah. we planned the flights and the schedule so that I would be fresh and ready to go because right after this podcast, you and I are on main stage at a conference, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, I, but back then the old me would have just plowed through that. So I had a yeah. bunch of signs uh, that I'll share some of them with people, but like my passion was starting to fade. Mm. Everything was an irritant. My emotions were not healthy. And unhealthy emotions to me manifested themselves. This is pre-burnout. And I just thought, oh, this is normal. This is the stress of leadership. It's not normal. You don't have to lead that way. You don't have to live that way. 
But I found that for me, one of the signs was my emotions were either flat, I felt nothing, I had grown numb. So you tell me some good news, it's like, hey, Carrie, I got some good news. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And on the outside, my face might be happy, but on the inside, there, it's just like nothing. Mm. Or my emotions are disproportionate. So, you know, I didn't get my uh, flat white this morning from Starbucks, and mm. that's a two out of 10 for issues, but I'm like having a meltdown over it. It's like, what do you mean there's no flat white from Starbucks, right? <laughs> blah, 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 You're blah, blah. that guy in the line. Uh, it could Starbucks. be that guy. It could be that guy. <laughs> yeah. And in my bad days, I'm, I'm, I'm that guy. And so my emotions are way out of proportion. I'm either feeling nothing mm. or completely inappropriate. Relationally, I was pretty drained. Wow. Uh, I just, I just didn't have, you know, strong friendships around me. Uh, other signs, I wasn't laughing anymore. Hmm. Everything was serious all the time. No, that's not good. That's hmm. not healthy. Uh, what are some other, oh, sleep and rest don't refuel you. So that's another one. If, if you just wake up tired day after day after day after day. Wow. And I've learned since then that no, sleep should be cause and effect. Like hmm. if you're really tired, go to bed and tomorrow you should feel better. And some days, you know, because you run at a big pace, it might be two or three days, but like there should be cause and effect. I pressed this button and, you know, this happened. And sleep and, and, and rest weren't refueling me. So those are some of the signs about burnout. So in, when you're in that moment, is there, what can you, what could you have done in that moment to prevent burnout? Is it, because mm-hmm. a part of, you hear burnout, you think, oh, you should, yeah. you should go to a therapist or you should uh, take two weeks off. Like what? Was there a fundamental shift? Were there a couple of habits you needed to break? What could have happened in that moment to prevent burnout? Well, I think in my case, pain was a great teacher. Mm. So when my whole life ground to a halt and I'm like, wow, this is like I'm broken, that was the begin- that was the impetus I needed. It's almost like going to the doctor and him telling you, well, you have diabetes and you're going to have a heart attack in six months, like change your life. Now, yeah. I haven't got that diagnosis, but yeah. you know, yeah. that would wake you up. So for me, yeah. that was very sobering to have my whole life grind to a halt. Looking back on it, I was in counseling, but I should have gone sooner. Mm. I should have listened more deeply. And to be honest with you, I was such a performance addict and things were going so well that I'm like, wow, if I really pay attention to this soul stuff, then this whole thing could fall apart and I'm doing it for God anyway, right? Yeah. So there was like, don't, the formula may be broken, but don't mess with the formula. Yeah. Don't, and and that is such a, now that's such a perverse way of thinking. Mm. But back then it made 100% sense. And so I would say, you know, what can you do to prevent burnout? The bigger question under that, probably if there's one sentence, Albert, over the last 15 years, well, 13 years that I've, 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 I've tried to live by, it's live in a way today that will, will help you thrive tomorrow. Mm. And I wasn't doing that. So mm. it would be um, sleep in a little bit more, mm. delegate more, um, have some fun, relax, take a day off, go yeah. and be with your wife and your boys yeah. and um, be a dad and a husband, not just a workaholic. I was a horrible workaholic mm. and still have those tendencies. Yeah, It would be to take sleep, diet, and exercise a lot more seriously hmm. than I than I was taking them because, you know, sleep was for wimps hmm. and diet. I was just hungry all the time and exercise. Well, my wife exercises. Does that count? Yeah. So I wasn't I wasn't paying attention to it. And it sounds so basic, right? Like we all know it's that huge. stuff. Yeah. But it's like go to bed, um, have deep relationships, 
get emotionally healthy, um, really address stuff in your life, like all that stuff that you're thinking doesn't really matter, probably mm. matters, mm. And, and confess it, that you are a jerk often yeah. at home, or you are a jerk to some of the people around you. And so I just, I wasn't taking any of that seriously. And I think if I had, and I have been trying for the last decade plus to take that much more seriously day to day and live in a way today that will help me thrive tomorrow. And, you know, here's the irony. I'm leading five, 10 times more than I ever did before I burned out. And of course, paying attention to all that stuff doesn't decrease your capacity. It increases it. But at the time, I was just so scared that whatever God had built was going to come crashing around. And if, you know, here's what's confusing. If you're doing it in the name of Jesus and it's a little bit unhealthy, but you see good fruit, like, all right, well, I'm just going to keep doing it because Jesus will make it better. Well, no, he wants to do it the right way. Yeah. 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 So the Ephesians passage, I talk about this here recently. All that God wants to do through you, he wants to do in you. Mm-hmm. So exceedingly and abundantly above all that you could ask or think according to the power that's working in you. Yeah. So God desires to do in you what he hopes to do through you. Yeah. Well, that's it. And I think there was a clog in the system. Like yep. my artery my leadership arteries were yep. clogged because he's like, Look, I'm doing this through you. Yeah. But if you would just get healthy, if you would get emotionally, relationally, spiritually healthy, if you get physically healthy, you know, do you know how much more I could do through you? But Newhoff, Mm. you're just like not paying attention. Yeah. Or you are, you think you are. Yeah. But there are parts of your life that you don't want me to have access to. Yeah. And so I think what God did, you know, it's funny because I I don't come from a prophetic tradition. Mm. Some of your listeners may, but there was a moment in seminary where one of my favorite profs, he was actually Anglican, a young guy who was big on evangelism, came up to me, and we're talking about just life in the middle of of a break between classes. And in the middle of like talking about, hey, it's a beautiful day. Did you see the Blue Jays game the other day? He looks at me direct in the eye, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, Carrie, God is going to use you, but before he uses you, he's going to break you. Wow. And then we went right back to like, chatting about the day. I'm like, what was that? And every time something bad happened in my life, right? One of our kids got in trouble or, yeah. you know, I'm like, is this the breaking? Is this it? Yeah, yeah. There was a little yeah. fender bender. Yeah. It's like, is this the breaking? The breaking. Am I broken now? Because yeah. I was terrified of that. And then of course, yeah. at 41, just my whole life grinds to a screeching halt. I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure that was the breaking. Here's the breaking. But God had to and and in his mercy, I think he would have done it another way. But I was so stubborn mm. that he's like, well, now you're snapped. Like, mm. you're going to listen now? Mm. It's like, okay, I'll listen. I'll listen. <laughs> what was it like for that to be such a such an intimate, painful time in your life, now writing a book about that? What was it like writing the book? Did you relive some of those moments? What position were you writing from and how was it? How did it impact you? Well, people have said, this is a thing you hear a lot of preachers say, but God uses your greatest pain for his purpose. Yeah. And at the beginning, it's it's like that guy in Philadelphia who's like, do you need to go to counseling? Like, I, I was not ready to share the message because I hadn't mm. processed it and, and I hadn't healed from it, right? Yeah. Like, any pain in your life, and I'm, I'm in a really good season right now, but yeah. let's say my wife and I were not, and we're arguing every day, for me to get up and talk about you know, a great marriage is going to be really difficult mm. because I can't help anybody with that. Yeah. But I got enough after about four or five years, I got enough 
insight and understanding into what happened and spent a lot of time trying to connect the dots and then realized, oh, this is actually helpful. And the pain was real and raw enough that I could talk about it with conviction and authenticity, but not real and raw enough where I'm bleeding all over the audience, right? Mm. And I would say if there's anything right now, and maybe this is something I should pray about, it's like, that almost feels like a different me, and I wish I could access my emotions a little bit better, but life, you know, that was 13 years ago and life has gone on. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can't say, like, I was suicidal at the, at the worst moment in August of 2006. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I, I thought the pain was so – and I remember this intellectually, but I don't remember this emotionally. Like, mm-hmm. I can't – maybe if I think about it, I'll, I'll get there. But intellectually, I know that I was thinking, okay, the only way through this is out of this. Mm. And that's something, that's I mean, good. we we would see – I mean, we've seen way too many suicides in the church and ministry. Yeah. And they but I, they feel that way. Oh, dude, I'll tell you, I remember how logical that seemed in the moment mm. and how it's like, well, my life is over. Um, my leadership is over. I'm broken. I'm of no good to anybody. And and that was that was just so – Pain, but it's the logic is so compelling in that moment. Hmm. And now I look back on that and I'm like, what was I thinking? Wow. But I was thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm able I've written some blog posts about it. It's in didn't yeah. see it coming. Not not probably as much as it should be because I think there is a a shame around that that yeah. I actually felt that way. Yeah. But it's true, I did I did feel that way. And, and so I'm I'm hoping it's helping people. And we're hearing from thousands of people yeah, that it is. I was is. about to say it's relating it's a the one of the number one topics is mental illness uh-huh. and how it affects us and how it shapes us and and mental illness has such a negative connotation towards it. It feels like shame, but physical any other illness, any other thing that's that's not not hitting on all cylinders like it should or an unhealthy self-perspective. I feel like the more we talk about it, the more we can open up, the more permission leaders and people can have to say, I'm not doing well. And it's not because my stomach hurts. It's not because I got a bad Achilles heel. It's not because my shoulders bruised. No, I'm not doing well because my mind and my soul are hurting and giving space for that because there's no band-aid for that and we don't know how to comfort that. So that's where I feel like we need to have more conversations. Not oh, less. and 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 I think that has been so helpful Albert in terms of normalizing the dialogue. Like if you broke your leg, if you showed up here in a wheelchair or, or crutch, I'm not like, "Wow, Albert Tate, he's like, what what is wrong with you, dude?" Right? It's like, <laughs> right. "Oh man, I'm sorry. What happened?" Yeah. Well, you know, I fell off this, yeah. you know, I was wind make up a good story. I yeah. was windsurfing. Yeah. Know? I don't there know you what go. you were yeah. doing. I'm but for sure windsurfing. You're sky you're skydiving all, and you broke your leg. All mm-hmm. things most black people don't do. <laughs> we're we're oh for 2 so far. <laughs> Don't email a, me because people be like, I do it and I'm black. Well, you're the one of the only few people in that line. <laughs> but no, well, but you know, you a, want a good story, but I'm, uh, there's no shame. There's no, no stigma to no, that. Not at all. But if you say, you know, I'm really struggling with suicidal thoughts or, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just being crippled right now under the weight of leadership. Mm. There, or or I've, I'm just having really, I'm just in a tough season. People have a harder time with that dialogue. So I think being able to talk about it and normalize that is really good. And to show that, you know, I'm sure there's some cases where there's a chemical imbalance or whatever, that it's just going to be a lifelong struggle. But like, 
I would say at this point, I am, and this is what I'm so excited about with my next book, is I talk about the recovery process even more than the problem. And like, yeah, I think this is how you can live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. Like I found that. I, I got that. 13 years under my belt. I've never felt better in my life. Mm. And I'm so excited. And ironically, I have more time at home, mm. more time with my wife. Our marriage is in much better shape and the best shape it's ever been. Mm. And... I'm loving life and I'm actually leading more and impacting more people than ever before. It's like, wait a minute. Why, why don't we talk about this? Yeah, yeah. the capacity is greater yeah. than it was when I was carrying the load myself. I love that. I so love that. So that's, what, that's what, uh, what I'm excited about with the message. Carrie, we talk about being an eight and <laughs> some, of the, um, some of the impact that that's had on relationships, um, whether it's working relationships, staff, and people. Um, you gave me this word um, because you said someone asked you, what is it like to be on the other side of you? Mm. Um, and as we Im- as we impact people around us, how have you dealt with the, um, the reality and the fruit of people having unforeseen bad experiences with you when you were just being who you were in the understanding of who you were at the time? How... What's the recovery on some of those relationships, or are mm. some of them just write grace over it and keep moving? How how does that play it out in your life? Yeah, I love that question, Albert. So that's my friend Jeff Henderson who asked that question. What's it like to be on the other yeah. side of me? And the answer is actually, for a lot of my life, not always fun. And so one of my uh, and and I've learned so emotional intelligence. If you look yeah. at that, Daniel Goleman would say. Two fundamental components of emotional intelligence is self-awareness, but also self-regulation. So eights, I mean, Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile write about this, but, you know, we talked about this before we started recording. Like, when I was a kid, I would walk into a room and people would be like, wow, you carry a presence. Like, what is that? You have the same thing, right? So that's just something that as a teenager, you know, if there's a a power vacuum, I'm going to step into it. If If this is chaos... I'm going to organize it. That's yeah. just natural. That's the way God created me. But it comes with a with a, a negative, right? And you're a big personality. I've always been a big personality. Yeah. And so I can be a bit of a tornado at times, or I yeah. can be a dominant force at home. And I have a quieter, gentler wife who's an Enneagram 5, hmm. which means I can overshadow her. So I think, uh, you know, part of in my 30s and then particularly after burnout, I've tried to become a lot more self-aware and also more self-regulated. Yeah. So one of my former um, senior staff members, her name's Nadine, mm-hmm. her nickname for me was Bam Bam. And do you remember the Flintstones? <laughs> the, the, car- Bam Bam? the baby, yeah, yeah. yeah. She said, you don't know your own strength. You come into a room, you shoot an opinion off, and you're like, there. And I, I see fundamentally, I don't know this because I'm Canadian, I see us all as equal. Like, even though I hold the power, even though it's my company, I'm the senior pastor, I just think, well, we're all equal. So, like, what do you think, Aaron? What do you think, you know, Albert? Come on, tell me. And then I'm like, well, I think we should do this. And then I think, okay, three co-equals just had input into this decision. Yeah. 
And they're like, no, you're a lawyer. You can destroy people in cross-examination. <laughs> you, can, you can win any argument any day. And Welcome you're a to big my pers- life, Karen. Yeah, That's is this your life? life? Is this oh, therapy? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And it's like your words just weighed 10,000 pounds. You crushed everybody in the room. Yeah. And you walked out thinking that you had a conversation with equals. Yeah. And so she would call me Bam Bam. And mm. it was really – this was years ago, almost a decade ago – and I would be like, oh, okay. And I don't see it because yeah. in my view, I just said, Albert, I think that's a dumb idea. Yeah. And then I walk out of the room and they're like, well, you just, you, Albert's crying in the corner. Crying well, you in wouldn't the, in be. The feet, in the fetal position. In the fetal position right, for right, months right, right. after you just told right. him you had no, a dumb I'm an idea. eight. I'd be ticked off. You'd be like, angry. Well, that guy's like, an idiot. He's an idiot. Forgive Newhoff's him. an idiot. I'm starting my own church. That's my it. own podcast. <laughs> that's it. I got my own podcast. <laughs> We're scrapping that. He's not a guest on this. I'm doing my own thing. Yeah. But you know, you can, you can leave people in puddles. For, for hours mm. when you say that. I'm like, okay, I need to take if, – if so many people are saying, if my wife is saying that's how I make her feel, if my kids, if they're telling me, if my staff are telling me, I need to pay attention. So yeah. now and, – and so I've, I've had one staff member I work with, Sarah, for over a decade now, and I'll ask Sarah, how was I in that meeting? Yeah. And I'll ask my team, how was I in the meeting? And they're like, actually, you were fine. Or like, well, when you said that to her, did you see what happens? And my answer always is, I didn't. Yeah. Like, I didn't know. I didn't. Okay, that's the impact. Yeah. So it's trying to, and I don't get it right all the time. I still, on my bad days, I can trample all over people. But again, if I'm arrested, you is a better you. So when I'm eating properly, when I'm sleeping enough at night, I, I then have the emotional bandwidth to have some um, some self-regulation. Yeah. Because self-awareness, it's one thing to walk out of the room and go, I crapped all over everybody today. I'm aware ah, of that. I'm aware yeah. of that. I'm yeah. very aware of that. It's another thing to have the self-regulation yeah. for your little dashboard to go off and go, Oh, you know what you're about to do right now? When you say that, you're going to crush him or you're going to you're going to totally make that person feel like an idiot. Yeah. Don't say it. Don't yeah. Do it. Ask a question. Don't make a statement. So I'm, and that is a daily thing where I am like trying to figure that out. Well, because people don't realize everything in me is raging to say it. Oh, and yeah. It, it is a release. I feel like I am doing everyone a service by articulating candidly and strongly that that I feel and with compassion. Uh huh. And it's empathy in there somewhere. You don't feel it right now, but you will. You'll come around <laughs> to it after you get blessed with these hard words. So my wife. So so with all the enneagram understanding, I've um, I've I've learned my voice. Um, and instead of self regulating, I noticed I've been looking for moments to get get approval and confirmation to be that. Because it's yeah. clearly that I, I so that was this, this anyway, here's a perfect example because my wife's a two. Um, and my tone and how I talk has always been a, cons, uh, a issue in our, in our marriage. And I mm-hmm. talk like I preach. So I talk persuasively <laughs> and declaratively. And I'm talking and she's like, why are you yelling? I'm like, I'm not yelling. I ain't talking. You know what I mean? So this has been a thing in our marriage. And I never forget um, Enneagram. You know how they have the little things on, Enne- on, on Instagram saying, uh, mm-hmm. here, here are things about an eight. Um, here are things that H yeah, yeah. wants you to know in an argument. We're not yelling. Uh, different <laughs> things like that. You know what I mean? So when I saw that, I kind of looked at my wife and was like, see there, see? Uh-huh. Because a part of me, I'm looking for permission to just be unregulated and to just uh-huh. let it rip. And she looked at me and she could tell that I was grabbing for permission to say, so in our next argument, 
Let me talk the way that I want to talk so I can get my comments out. And she looked at me and she says, yeah, I get that. But that still doesn't change the way that I feel. Right. And I was like, oh, my words and me living into the fullness of me crushes you. So I've got to self-regulate and deny myself the opportunity to live into the fullness of the moment of how I feel it. Because if I say it like I feel it, although well-intentioned, the impact is a negative result on my wife. Well, and you think that, tell me if this isn't true. You're thinking, no, I'm just emoting it a three out of 10 and your wife feels it as a 12. Exactly. Out of 10. That, that is a reality. Too. And That's and, the bam bam. And my right? thing is, since you know that that's true mm-hmm. and I'm at a 12, just let me be at a 12. Mm-hmm. Let me just let it rip. But what I didn't calculate is me being at a 12 makes her feel a certain kind of way, yeah. even if that's not my intent. So it's the big difference between intent and impact. And oh, I've always had good. to wrestle through the difference of, yeah, 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 intent, intent was good, but you're also held responsibility for the impact. And I don't want to impact my wife neg- negatively. So now that becomes a catalytic uh, force that helps me restrain and regulate myself because at the end of the day, I don't want you to feel bad because it felt good to say what I said. So here's a couple thoughts. I've had to look for other outlets because I yes, realized good. Yes. my wife, my yes. kids, yes. my staff, yes. the congregation. So you know what I do every once in a while? I have Evernote. Or I'll just go into my blog and I'll start like typing a blog post where I'm – because <laughs> let's be honest. You see reality as an eight, right? And oh, you're yes. like, these guys are idiots. Oh, yeah. And I'll just start typing, 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 and I get this little rant off me, and then I'll depersonalize it so it's not about – but, you know, people are like, where does your content come from? You know where a lot of it comes from? I'm just frustrated. And Yes. And it is. that's like – Carrie, it is our greatest inspiration. It is. It, it is. is. Creativity Everything flows that's out wrong. of frustration. I'm like, I'm, I'm pissed – Oh, a new book is coming. This is yeah. going to be like... <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then I can usually sanitize it by the time yes. and depersonalize it. So by the time it actually hits the blog, but I'm really frustrated. Writing is an outlet for me, oh. or I'll go on a bike ride, or I'll go cut my lawn or something. But it's better to cut your grass and cut people down, right? For sure. And mm-hmm. I've seen your lawn. So you get mm-hmm. ticked off a I lot. I get uh, ticked off a lot. Because your yard looks it's great. Like three times a week. No, right? I've, got mm-hmm. a, I've got a best friend who's a pastor and yo I call him and we just give each other unfiltered unedited just comments and commentary and once we get done we say if things if these things are ever recorded and go public we're done yeah we're done but by the time we get done I realize oh that's all I needed. It's like a volcano. It's literally. Right? And then I can enter into a situation or a conversation at a genuine level four or three appropriately as opposed to the level 14 I was just at. I just needed that heat to get off. Mm-hmm. And then I can engage it at a at a respectable, honorable, honorable normal level. Yeah. I've also given my wife, who's a five, permission to feedback. So sometimes I, she tells a story now. In when we're out, like I think it was here in San Diego where mm. I wanted when my book came out, there was a picture of Ron Burgundy with his book, like a cutout. <laughs> and so I like wanted a picture of me with Ron Burgundy, but it was really awkward because he had to take it through glass and everything. And I guess I was being a little bit of a diva. And she, she just said to me, she says, listen, if you behave that way, I'm not taking your picture. And I'm like, oh, okay. I respect that. 
And so she's realizing <laughs> when you stand up to Just an eight and go, yeah. you're being an idiot. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you know what I am. Yeah. You're right. It's so you're good. Right. It's so good. So yeah, I'm learning a lot about that. And, and the self-regulation thing is sort of my current growth curve because I'm doing less venting yeah. than I used to with the people because you just realize, okay, this is unintended because I'm not trying to crush you. Yeah. I'm not trying to frustrate you, but I'm going to do that with my personality. And again, the difference between uh, a, a healthy eight, according to the experts, is you know an unhealthy eight is Joseph Stalin, everybody dies. A healthy eight is Martin Luther King Jr. and mm. everyone gets liberated. Mm. So I would rather have my eight be a liberating. let's liberate some people yeah. and let's make the people closest. This is something I learned. I thought it was Andy Stanley. He said it wasn't him. Maybe it's John Maxwell. I don't know. Or it could have been me. Just, it I was just, Albert just, Tate. Just it all goes back to Albert it's, Tate. It's not me, but if you're just going to pontificate yes. on different names, so as Albert throw Tate, me out there. <laughs> you know, as, as Andy Stanley and John Maxwell stole from Albert Tate. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, sure. <laughs> it's I want the people closest to me to be the most grateful for me. Mm. And if I got a few decades left on this planet, I want that to be more and more true. And it's the people, right? Albert, you know this. It's the people closest to you who see the most real you. Yeah. It is yeah. your wife. It's your kids. It's that yeah. inner circle at yeah. your church. It's yeah. the inner circle in leadership. Those 20 people yeah. who are in just constantly in and out of your life, yeah. that they're either, are they happy when you text them, when you see, when they see your name, yeah, is it like, oh, what is it now, or what's mm. he upset about now, or are they mm. like so grateful to see you? When you walk in the room, do they cower or do mm. they gravitate toward you? Mm. And I think there was a season in my life where maybe it was a lot more mixed than it is now. Yeah, but I want those people closest to me, not because I want them to be grateful for me, but no. because I want my impact of such to have somehow reflected Christ, to somehow have reflected the Holy Spirit. So they're like, you know what, my life is better. Because I've hung out with this guy. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. I feel like that's been the story of my last few years and navigating leadership challenges and winning and losses and body counts along the way. <laughs> yeah. And really just really discovering it. I mean, I'm really thankful for the Enneagram. Like, because a lot of the stuff I didn't see, and you're just showing up and people are having an experience with your presence that you don't even realize because your presence Correct. is so bigger than yourself. Out of that, though, Carrie, I, I experienced. Um, to me, that's where some of the loneliness and the isolation comes from because it's like, man, I don't get to be me or I'm struggling to be me or trying to figure out what it's like to be me. Well, it's because it's a thin line between self-regulating and then self-pitying because it's like, oh yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? It. Yeah. It's like it's like this self-pity and I. We were good friends yeah. for a long time. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So growing because you think nobody understands me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not a that's not a healthy line of of thinking. No. Right? No. Yeah. Yeah, you know, self-pity is is you know what, you know what I think I've I've written about this but I can't articulate it perfectly, but I've I've been doing a lot of journaling around that because self-pity and I would hang out. When Tony got mad at me or something didn't go well at work or I blew it, I would just be like, "Well, nobody really understands me." And then yes. I kind of yes. cocoon and then I'm in the fetal position, yes. right? Yes. Going, oh, you know, my life's miserable." So, I think I think self-pity is confession without forgiveness and repentance. Mm, no, that's good. So you're kind of like, okay, this is actually who I am. This is what I did. But I haven't received forgiveness, and I haven't figured out. Because in that action, in that eight, 
somewhere in that that problem that you created, that truth that you spoke, yeah, or the passion that you felt, yeah, there was the power of God, there was the image of God, but somehow it got stained, yeah, somehow it got twisted, it got turned in a in a certain way, and now you're like, okay, well, I meant good, but I did bad. So how do we redeem that? And I think that is in the self-awareness you get from other people. It's in the confession. And then it's the... And I I think the last 15 years has been a story of God redeeming those parts of my personality, the ability to see truth. But how do I articulate it then in a way that helps people? How do I... Because, you know, I walk... Tony will joke with me all the time. She's like, you walk into the house, I can have everything right. But if that picture is hanging a little bit crooked, you will note it. Mm. And you'll say, like, let's make it straight. And I'm mm. like, why can't you just focus on the good? It's like, because that's not what I do. Right, right. I find the problems. That's what I do. I I'm fix a problems. That's I what I do problems. for a living. That's what I do for a living. Oh, that's good. And so good. I'm like, you know, I've learned compensating behaviors. Like, I will not say anything and I will go and do the dirty dish. Or, mm. you know, the one that yeah. is left. 99 were cleaned. Yeah. But I found the one that was not clean. So godly. It's just go do so it. So godly oh, of you, Carrie. It's like, I want to stay married. How's that? That's not godly. That's That's like self-preservation. You know, something that's been changing my life is we've been talking a lot about praying big prayers. Mm. Um, And one of the big prayers, I did a whole sermon series and working on a book and a prayer journal. Um, One of them is the prayer of confession. Uh, And as an eight, it's really being quick to confess sin and to call out the areas where I just unintentionally um, impacted someone in a negative way mm -hmm. and freeing up to confess that. But just the whole idea of confession, it's not something that we preach about, talk about, or practice a lot in our culture. Um, But it is the answer to the self-pity. It brings it to a place of confession, which then ushers in a, an opportunity for redemption and for God to do a new work in that area of your life. So that's just... that's Well, here was my reality check years ago. Either they're all wrong or I'm wrong. <laughs> so, you know, when you got 10 out of 10 people yeah, going, yeah. that was a bonehead move. Yeah. The yeah. odds of all of them being wrong are uh, probably unlikely. pretty low. However, as an eight, though, I will challenge those numbers though it's like <laughs> you oh, just don't understand sure. you just don't understand me oh carrie this uh, is this has been awesome thank you so much for your time this whole season uh one of the themes is in the waiting room and i feel like everything we've been talking about is stuff that happened when um when god kind of forced you in a waiting room oh, can i just say hard. back to what we started with, with yeah. the platform yeah my word would be wait mm. until you've got a story to tell that can help oh, people, good. right? Because you look that's at good. the thread there. I didn't really have a platform when I was 32. God was doing all kinds of things in me that I would later be able to talk about. And even you know, when I was in the middle of burnout, yeah. I couldn't talk about it. You had to wait. Yeah. Yeah. But the God will give you a message. Mm. And you know how you, you know how you end up with a platform that really resonates with people is you just help enough people. Yeah. And eventually they tell their friends, and then they show up, and then mm. suddenly the next thing you know, you know whether that's dozens or hundreds or thousands or millions, but th- they show up. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you go, I have this platform. What just yeah. happened? Yeah. I think that's how it really happens authentically. I, as a church planner, I resonate with that, and I think that's also how you grow churches. Mm, yeah. It's not just like, oh, we got to get a thousand people in the room. Yeah. It's no. like, let's just help these 10 people that are here today. And then they'll tell their friends. 
Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, where did that help come from? It came from my church. And I think yeah. that's, I'm sure there are 10 other ways, and I'm sure you'll blog about them and list all 10 ways to do it. <laughs> but right. When I'm frustrated uh, enough, I'll blog <laughs> right, about them. Right, there you go. That is brilliant. That is, yeah. I don't, for an eight, frustration produces so much creativity. So if you self-regulate it, it's really a gift. Uh, problems are really opportunities to create sm- cool solutions. What I've learned, though, is I can't tweet about them immediately. No, I can't no, blog about no. them. I got to take the edge off. <laughs> Let a couple of time, let a little time go, and then slide it in, and it's golden. Kind of like you, Carrie Newhoff. Thank you so much for talking hey, with us. Albert, so appreciate you, your friendship, your leadership, and thanks for having me on. Oh, anytime. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Albert Tate Podcast. To stay connected, make sure to subscribe to the Albert Tate channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. You can follow along with Albert on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.